Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Venice, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Sarah Bond and Joel Christensen, where I ask them, what were the very first Olympics like? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have such an exciting episode today because we have not one, but two experts who are a literal, historical geniuses. Welcome back to Getting Curious, Dr. Sarah Bond, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Iowa. Uh, for any of our listeners, you may remember us learning about some incredible Mediterranean drinking cultures with Sarah earlier in the year. And then Joel Christensen, who is our first time guest on Getting Curious, is professor and chair in the Department of Classical Studies at Brandeis University. Welcome, Joel and Sarah. Hey, thank you uh, for having us. It's I, great to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. And um, okay, so everyone listening, we have our literal first a baby co-guest, Layla, which she deserves an introduction. She how She's a, just a little teeny tiny baby. She's uh, seven weeks old. Oh, my gosh, we got some audio. Yes, we've got some audio from baby. This is, we have to welcome Layla. She's our first getting curious baby guest of all time. This is an auspicious occasion and I'm very excited. Okay, so here is the scene. This is the question for today. What were the first Olympics like? And not those ones in 1896, honey. The ones that were like, you know, hundreds. And how many? I don't even know when it was, how it was. And I will just say this. It has been brought to my attention as an adult that the Olympics can, you know, the, the Olympics aren't all just production packages on NBC with like really good songs that make me cry from like all the slow motion, like training shots and all like the victorious shots and then like the falling shots, like those, those packages and the opening ceremonies, the Parade of Nations, all of it. It's got me hook, line and sinker from the time I was like five. Like I can't help but that I'm obsessed. Now I do realize that they're kind of like, you know, they have some corruption pieces. They have some problematic pieces, but I just willfully choose to not look at those and just keep my head buried in the packages and the athlete stories because I just think it's incredible. I love the Olympics. And so that's where the curiosity came from. Um, what were the very first ancient Olympics like ever? And I couldn't think of two better guests to help us learn about it. Can I just say that I wouldn't have been allowed to even be there because I'm a married woman. Oh, no, they've uh, they've always been a nightmare. So the, the, the International <laughs> Olympic Committee always was on some bullshit. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even be able to be in attendance. Um, if you're an unmarried woman, you could go and be a spectator. But if you're a, a, a civilized, matronly woman, um, I'm, I'm not supposed to attend. So I'll hand this over to Joel to try and set the scene for us. Well, I, and I might not even be allowed there um, because the first Olympics were, for, first of all, in Greece, let's be clear with that, but they're also for aristocrats, right? And though I may look and sound like one, I am not an aristocrat. Um, so I got to, you know, when we're talking about the first Olympics, the question is, there's a mythical first Olympics, there's a historical alleged first Olympics, and then there's sort of the tradition of game playing um, that you can find in Homer. Um, so I'll give you those options. So like an A, B, and C. Oh my God, it's a literal choose your own adventure. Joy, yeah, wanna... I wasn't ready this soon for a choose your own adventure. Um, so there's mythical and then the alleged first. And then there's like the literal series of games that they played in ancient Greece. Yep. I hate to tell you this, but my, my motto for 2021 is both and 
So we'll probably have to do all of them because, honey, I got the curiosity bug and you just tipped it <laughs> off hardcore. So I think mythical I'm actually the least interested in because I want to know what really happened. And I think that, uh, Layla doesn't even know what dicks means yet. So it's fine for me. She's a baby. She doesn't even like literally know it yet. So because I think that there's like dicks involved in stuff. Like I feel like there's like naked <laughs> athletes and stuff. Like I feel like that's what I saw in some like some sculptures and stuff. So yeah, I want to know about the alleged first. Okay, actually, no, no, no. I'm a liar. I'm changing. What? No, no, no. Yeah, that's what I want. I'm sorry. This is. I. I, I wasn't ready for the choice. I, I apologize. The first alleged Olympics in Greece. Right, well, let's see that. Whether it's mythical or legend, you can imagine as much nudity and as many dicks as you'd like. Right. Ah. I mean, because we don't know for sure. Oh, um, but. So, Here's the thing. The Olympics were so important in ancient Greece that they were the only unified dating system that Greek city-states had. So if you went from like Corinth to Sparta to Athens, they had different calendars for the months, they had different names, they had different years, but they all agreed that the first Olympics was in what we would call 776 BCE. And then it happened every four years. So if you're reading like a Greek historian, he'll say this event happened in the third year of the 15th Olympiad. And then you have to do all this math to to figure out what year we're talking about and then translate it in arms. So that's, we're going back to like before, you know, the foundation of Athens, the Athenian politics as we know it to 776 BCE. And every four years after 776 BCE, they had Olympics for how long? Okay, so in 393, um, Theodosius I, who's a Roman emperor, is like, you know what? Olympics are pagan AF. Um, if, if they use AF. And, uh, so he decides that the Olympics are nomas. Uh, and, and so we have it at the end of the fourth century. Although we have lots of games and athletics that continue on after Theodosius's rule, the Olympics are seen as a pagan festival because they center on Zeus. Um, Zeus is, of course, not part of Christianity. And so Theodosius is not a fan. And, uh, so we don't have any more Olympics until we get to 1896. Uh, that is the, the reemergence. I have another like nightmare question that's literally like, the third time I've asked it on getting curious. So we're probably going to edit out anyway, but I just got to get it together. With BCE, isn't it like the closer you get to zero, the later it was, which is why I'm so confused by BCE. Right. So let's, let's, there's no zero, oddly enough. So we, <laughs> there's no zero. So let's just say this is one BCE. Okay. Um, the Olympics are back here in 776. And then we have to go a thousand years, a little over a thousand years to get to 393. So um, that's the CE over here. And then Joel hangs out mostly in the BCE. I hang out a lot in the CE. And sometimes we meet up at conferences. So, <laughs> I yeah. am. OK, so basically these go on for a long time. And we're going to make it messier for you because it wasn't just about Olympic Games. There were Isthmian Games, Nemean Games. Pythian games, and they all started after 776 BCE, somewhere every four years, somewhere every eight years. Um, and there are festivals to different gods, but they all included more or less the same series of events, right? Where there would have been dirt and nudity and a lot of times music and poetry as well, right? Um, so imagine adding, you know, American Idol to, or Eurovision, because that's closer in time, um, to uh, the Olympics, and that's closer to where you're getting. Okay, so that but that Theodosius guy, he became like a like a hardcore Fox News watching Christian, honey, and then he didn't want to have any more of these pagan games. 
So why couldn't he just make it more of like a Jesus thing and then the athletes could have kept going? Or was that like too controversial? Well, here's the thing is that Constantine cancels gladiators. Um, they don't actually stop altogether, but Constantine is not a fan of gladiatorial fights. Um, and then what is uh, the interesting thing about antiquity is that almost all athletics that are on a large scale for spectators and games, etc., are almost always tied either to an event, but oftentimes to a religious event and a festival. And so if you're getting rid of all the gods who are worshipped and given kudos, essentially, through the use of athletics and games and festivals, um, if you wipe out the pantheon of gods, then, you know, Jesus doesn't want gladiatorial fights and Jesus doesn't really want charioteers. Um, so... It's hard because Jesus is all, I don't want that. And Zeus is like, but I do. Um, <laughs> and so Theodosius just kind of stops it. <laughs> and it's tied to like to, to Greek ritual and religion in really amazing ways. So like some of the uh, you know, first example of literature we have of athletic contests comes from the end of Homer's Iliad, where Achilles holds holds him in honor of his dead um, lover or friend, uh, Patroclus. Is that uh, a guy? Uh, it is a guy. Ooh. And it's a big, it's a big event. And all the events you know of from the classical Olympics are held there um, and prizes are given out. And it's part of funeral rites, funeral honors. So it's really part of a pagan ritual from a Christian perspective from the very beginning. Okay, so did that Constantine come before or after Theodosius? He comes before. So Constantine is the one that really encourages Christianity. And then about 50 years after Constantine, Theodosius is like, I'm going to take it next level. I'm going to make it the official religion of the entire Roman Empire because Constantine was like, I'm just going to make it allowable to be Christian. And Theodosius is like, you know what? That's not enough. I'm going to pass an edict that says everybody has to be Christian. Um, and so that's really when the Olympics come into danger because the Olympics are a form of worship, right? And so we have all the way back to say the second and third century Christian writers saying things like, this is idolatrous. This is blasphemous. It's too sexy. It's a little too sexy. Um, and also it's, it's something that, that is diverting Christians away from what they should be focused on, which is worship within the basilica, within the church. And so the Olympics are seen as kind of a diversion, but also something that is blasphemous. Um, and and that's, uh, that's a shame. But when they're abolished in 393, thereabouts, we have then its, its reemergence, its renaissance about 1500 years later um, in 1896. And so that's the modern Olympics that we have today is that that's when it restarts is at the end of the 19th century. Um, and, and then this develops into a every four year festival and has a lot of the same events as the original Olympics, but it includes, eventually includes women, right? Um, something that the original Olympics did not have because women had their own athletic competitions. I also have to hear about the Lady Olympics because that's where, I mean, I typically tend to be more of like a lady tennis, lady gymnastics, lady mm -hmm. figure skating. I just naturally gravitate towards like lady athletes more because I just... I don't know. 
I think it's the, I don't know. I just like it so much more. I don't know. I, I, I suffer from like reverse sexism when it comes to sports, like where I like ladies so much better and really only want to watch their stuff. So it's so interesting. But anyway, even though men, I think are so, you know, they're so hot, but I think it's the grace, whatever. This isn't what I'm asking. 776. Mm-hmm. What was the deal? What was the lady Olympics? What was the man Olympics? Mm-hmm. What were the sports? Perhaps we should also define the space within which it's uh, actually being competed in because both men and women are going to compete in running races. And the men do a stadion and a stadion is 185 meters. So it's just, it's about, it's almost half, half of a track lap. Um, a, a track lap is 400 meters. 200 meters is half and 185, you know, just a little bit less. So the men are running a full stadion, which is where we get the word stadium from. Okay. And the women, they run five sixths of the same length as the men in their own festival to Hera. So I'll hand it over to Joel because he's got Zeus in his pocket and, <laughs> and I, I can, I can say more after him. When I saw, uh, 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 Hercules, uh, on Disney when I was little, I'm pretty sure Zeus was like sexy and he had a cute crown and he was very nice. So it turns out Zeus was like a proper ancient Greek rapist. Pretty yeah. much. And he also like a murderer. And, you know, his first wife was a goddess named Matus. He impregnated her and then ate her. And that's where Athena came from. And all the other stories you know about Zeus, like he turns into animals to get close to women and then just, you know, jump on them. Um, I mean, he's, he's not really the nice guy. Disney, once again, misrepresenting something hardcore. Here I was just thinking that Zeus was daddy. And meanwhile, he was a nightmare. So anyway, what were the sports? Uh, well, so the first one was held in honor of Zeus at Olympia, um, and we know for sure that the foot race was there to begin. Um, but early on, this became a place where, like, the aristocratic families, the noble families of major cities would get together for four years to sort of show off the skills that they practiced for war if they ever actually went to war. So if you're thinking about, like, the the games that they engaged in, it's the kind of things you might do if you want to be a Homeric warrior, right? Homeric warriors throw spears. So you're going to do a javelin throw. They run into battle, so you're going to practice running. Um, eventually, there's a pancration, there's, uh, which is if, it's more like the U- modern UFC MMA, where it's wrestling and, um, and uh, boxing. Um, but then you also have classic Greek sports, like boxing and wrestling, which aren't necessarily like ours. So Greek boxing was basically just standing still and punching people in the head till they fell over. Um, and wrestling was a little closer to ours in that it's about throwing people down. But of course, they were naked and oiled up at the time, right? So it was a slightly different sport. And then you get like archery um, and discus throwing eventually, throwing big, heavy things. Uh, basically, what you'd need to be a big, strong warrior. Okay, but wait, so the Greek boxing, that was just like, I'm imagining Gladiator. I'm imagining Marcus Aurelius and like some other guy and like a little circle. And they just, so you just got to do one punch at a time and whoever like didn't fall over and who's like didn't die, like was the winner. 
Yeah. Do you remember the movie? What was the Tom Cruise movie? Is it Far and Away? The one where he's an Irish boxer. In that movie, like, so the reason he's a good boxer in that movie is he starts to move around, whereas everybody else just stands still. So if you go and watch that scene, the big Hulk who's just there is trying to punch you in the head. um, That's Greek boxing, but there are two big Hulks. um, And it's really like, so if you read like passages of it from literature, Odysseus, when he gets in a boxing match, thinks, should I hit this guy to knock him down or just to kill him? Right. So this is the idea that it's a one punch thing um, and that you don't necessarily have to be in running shape uh, to compete. Yeah, and I would just add that there are no weight classes in Greek boxing, um, right? So what we've done today is like, oh, you're a featherweight, you're a heavyweight, right? Because Muhammad Ali can't take on Sugar Ray, right? Um, for many reasons. You're so smart about boxing. I learned about baseball and sports mostly from my father because I wanted to be loved the most out of our six children. Oh my God, so. six kids. That's a lot to <laughs> contend with. Okay, wait. Yeah. So it's... so. Mr. Joel, um, so what were the, do we, do we know that there was like five sports, four, six? Do we know exactly how many there were at the very first one? I don't know exactly, but I'll tell you what there likely was. There was running, one, right? There, there was wrestling, boxing, and um, we're forgetting the, the, the glory competition in ancient Olympics, which was a chariot race. Right. We don't have this in our Olympics, um, but we have all this evidence from Greek poetry. So here's the thing that's going to shock you. There were poets who specialized in writing victory hymns for winners at the games. We have entire poetic traditions called Eponician poetry, guys named Pindar and Bacchylides, who wrote, who just made a living writing poems for wealthy guys whose kids won in Olympic contests. And many of them are chariot races. Right. Um, and so that was a big deal, too. Again, you sort of you drive a chariot really fast, you make a tight corner and then come back around. And of course, in the by the time it got to the high period, you are paying people to drive your fancy horses for you. OK, so the high period, how much later was the high period after 776? So when I'm saying that, I'm thinking sort of classical age Athens, right? So in the 5th century BCE, after the Persian Wars, when it was so important if you were an Olympic victor, that if you won, when you came home to Athens, you could eat free on the city's dime for your entire life. Ooh, that's very Russian. Because, you know, if a, if, if a Russian figure skater or gymnast, like, gets a bronze, silver, or gold, I think in the Olympics or the World Championships, they, like, get their apartment paid for them in Moscow or St. Petersburg. It's like a thing. So when you say the, that the Olympics in this era were for aristocrats only, does an aristocrat mean, like, prince, princesses, like, duchesses, but they had, like, different names in Greece? <laughs> the only contestants. No, um, it, it, it really depended on um, the city state. So like some cities had kings and royal families. So, uh, you know, Sparta had two kings, right? Other families, other cities had tyrants or oligarchies. But even in Athens, which was a democracy, they had families who traced their roots back to kings, right? And so these would be landowners. They would be chiefs of their tribes, if we see them that way, and just really wealthy people, right? So the famous guy, Socrates, he would still be in a way uh, a nobleman, right? An aristocrat. So, like, were there like, did they ever open up to like commoners? Like, could people that weren't aristocratic come watch the games? Were they ever like ticketed events? What about like referees or judges? Like, were they ever like not aristocratic? 
Yeah, so the, this is one of the places where our lack of knowledge is embarrassing. Um, so if you're looking for like uh, a Greek era knight's tale type of story where a commoner goes and wins the way nobility, I don't think we have any evidence of that. No right? fucking poems just, about that at all? None. Yeah. So poetry really missed the boat on this one, right? Um it wasn't um, a charge because you had to be, look, think about it this way. Imagine your life like is subsistence living. You have to farm your ass off every day to put away enough food so you don't starve over the winter. The only assholes who can get off work long enough to go hang around for games and get drunk all day are people who have a lot of money to begin with. Right. And, and so they're the ones who are going. So you don't have to pay once you get there because the cost is getting there to begin with. So what about like, uh, like, how, what percentage of the Greek population do you think would have had enough money to participate? I have no idea. I would guess a small percentage. I would put it probably at 5%. Mm. Right. Um, and that depends on who we're counting. Are we counting women? Are we counting enslaved people? Are we counting, you know, resident aliens and foreigners? Right. Um, so the number gets really small. It's one of those things that right, our, our, our historical record skews so much to the elite that it's hard to even answer that question without going to sort of really complicated archaeological data. That's interesting because um, one of I did an episode on ancient China recently, well, near ancient China. And she was saying how like, you know, a lot of times history is written by like the, you know, winners. I hold up my air quotes, but it's like, if you were really suffering and like you say, like just trying to eat to make sure they had enough food put away, like you probably weren't writing like a lot of like books in like a stone or like something that didn't, you know, wear away over time. So it's like, however much evidence you could leave was really directly tied, you know, of your existence is really directly tied to what your resources are in the time in which you lived, which it makes us so complex. But I do think that common people were doing some of these games, right? I think they were playing as well. Like they would be running, they would engage in archery, mm. um, they would do some of those things, just like I might go and play pickup basketball, right? Nobody's going to write a poem about my shot, my three pointer in a pickup game. Um, but it's still part of my life. It's part of my work. Were the, were these gladiator things like, you know, in gladiator, the movie esque things, was that happening at the same time as the Olympics, but that was more like football or something? Well, <laughs> this is so Roman Romans, even though they are interested in the Olympics, um, they kind of allow for it to to happen um, in Greece. And, and there's kind of not as much interest until we get to the, the period of Augustus, who is roughly contemporaneous with the life of Jesus. Um, and, and so Romans have their own sets of sports. They have their own sets of games. Um, and it's not that they never participate with the Olympics or they never go and, and have spectators rather that, that do it. It's just that, um, Romans have their own festivals to their own gods. And there's a, a big difference in the types of people who are allowed. So Joel has talked a lot about the fact that, um, we have elite men participating in the Olympics. But what we have in Rome, um, is, predominantly enslaved individuals who are gladiators. Um, and so in the movie Spartacus, uh, I'm talking about go back to the 1960 version, the Kubrick version of Spartacus. Um, that is 
going to be almost completely enslaved persons who are allowed to participate as gladiators because they're seen as chattel, that is to say property that is owned by individuals and by the state. Um, and charioteers have a little bit of a higher status, but they're still kind of regular people. Um, and so in Roman athletics, what they're doing is kind of having fun hunting and fishing, um, wrestling later on, taking on some of the Greek athletics later on. But Greek athletes are later imported into Rome in order to do games that are thrown by the emperor. Um, or sometimes we have Nero, who is uh, living in the mid first century CE. Nero actually travels to Olympia and participates in the Olympics. He buys off judges in order to try and get a win. Because the Olympics go from zero up to 393. So the Olympics are still happening. Okay, wait. So I have, I have a really basic question, and I feel like this happens to me a lot on Getting Curious, where like I have like a literal, highly specified expert. But this is going to be a really fucking basic question to ask two historians, so just fucking brace yourself, okay? So Roman Empire happens after Greece... And what? Well, and they, overlap. they they're, overlap. They're kind of they are kind of like a Venn diagram. Okay, so they can they happen at the same time. Um, what people kind of think of as the rise and fall of Greece is Greece continues to exist. It it, it is and always shall be. Um, but when it has the most sway, waxes and wanes. And so when Romans in the second century BCE come into the Peloponnese, that is to say the main area of, uh, of Greece, um, and to Attica, which is where Athens is, they eventually annex it as a province. So Greece becomes part of the Roman Empire, which is a very large Mediterranean empire. Rome is in the Italic Peninsula, but she takes over Greece um, in in the second century BCE. And then in the first century, we have a, dic a dictator whose name is Sulla. Um, and he actually wants to have athletics at his own games back in Rome. So he pilfers Olympians from the Olympic Games. And he's like, you know what? I'm a Roman potentate. I'm a Roman politician. And I would like to have some of these badass Olympians who are so famous. I want to bring them over to Rome. And so when Rome takes over Greece, there's a lot of friction because the prestige of the Olympic Games gets usurped in some ways and taken over to Rome as, as a way of expressing empire. Because Rome is like, you know what? We criticize the Greeks for being too feminine, for being too naked all the time. But at the end of the day, they wanted to take some of the parts of the Greek Olympics and athletics and, and make them their own uh, because they admired them in some ways. So is it is it fair to say that like Greek, Greek, like did the Greek empire, they did democracy and then like the Roman one was like, was that like uh, like a monarchy sort of thing? Well, okay, so the Romans start off as a monarchy with Romulus. And, and this might be a good time to say that Romulus knew about charioteering, just like the Greeks knew about charioteering, because we're told when Romulus founds Rome on April 21st of 753 BCE, so roughly the same time as the Olympics are happening, 
Within about 20 years, Romulus founds the city of Rome and almost immediately to show off the fact that he's amazing, he has his own kind of charioteer games, right? So charioteering across the Mediterranean around a track, which is called a circus. Um, so that's where we get the modern day circus today. Um, the circus, and in Rome, the most famous one is called the Circus Maximus. Um, charioteering was part of Roman tradition for a very long time. So Rome has kings from 753 BCE to 509. And then in 509, this guy named Brutus kills, um, or he overthrows the last king who was eventually then later killed. Um, and then they found something called a republic. So it's not quite, it's not an Athenian democracy, but it is a a form of Republican government. What we often miss out on because we teach these subjects like as Greece and as Rome is that they have shared culture beyond just the space they share. So there were Greeks in Southern Italy um, well before the first Olympics. They were all the way over um, in, Sp in modern Spain um, and they really shared a lot. And just to give you sort of the mind blowing thing that always shocks me is that in almost the same year the Romans started their republic, um, the Athenians overthrew a tyrant and created their democracy, right? Yeah. There was something going on in the Mediterranean, um, and we often just don't see the shared cultural traits because we just, you know, myopically look at one place and not another. Um, uh, and so I think games are there too, right? I mean, they, they were fighting the same way, they were training the same way, um, and the aristocratic culture was similar. Tons of noblemen um, and noble families from Greece settled in Italy um, when the Persians came in, and they just moved from one place to another. Uh, so too often, like mm -hmm. our academic departments actually keep us from investigating things and seeing the world the way it was. Yeah. Yes. Tell me, I think Sarah. that's a really good point. I mean, one thing I wanted to bring in because we did want to talk about nakedness a little bit and everybody likes uh, talking about birthday suits is that the nakedness of the Olympics. Um, and some people say that started with them wearing loincloths and then migrated uh, with a runner named Orsippus who allegedly wanted to go you know, completely naked as, as a runner. Um, that this was a defining feature of Greek athletics that Romans oftentimes rejected how naked it was. Um, and also the Persians, the Persians were fully clothed when they competed in their own sports and athletics. And Greeks took a lot of pride in saying, you know what? The Persians are fully clothed and we are civilized men. We are highly masculine men and we're comfortable in our masculinity. So we're going to be naked. And this is something that's always confused me about runners. I don't understand how people are out there aging, running so hard with no support. There's got to be a lot of uncomfortable people. Okay, not to be rude, but I feel like a lot of the sculptures, like I feel like they had like some small ass penises then with like really little balls. So maybe they just like it wasn't as much weight on it, you know, because I do think that like I just their dick seemed, according to the sculptures, a lot littler back then. Well, so Sarah can tell, say more about this than I can. But the basic thing is that uh, Greek sculpture doesn't represent the body as it really is, right? It's idealized. And they thought that big penises were a sign of excessive desire and animalistic nature. So oh. even if a model might have had a long schlong, it would have been reduced um, it, when it was, it was turned into ancient Photoshop. I hate well, it. Yeah. They yeah, Photoshop Joel, the Joel. big dicks. <laughs> 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 
Would you say this is small dick syndrome instead of big dick syndrome? Absolutely. You know, you, you have like a gravitas <laughs> from your small dick instead of a gravitas from your big dick. So I'm shook. Okay, so <laughs> so basically what I hear you saying is, because I think that I really did. I always, obviously I'm not a historian, but I definitely always thought of these two things as like existing independently of each other. But really ancient Greece and ancient Rome kind of happen around the same times. And But who's widely credited with being like the first democracy? I mean, Athens is what people usually say. And, you know, and they usually don't say it as always a positive thing. Um, because it was rather chaotic, right? The rules are sort of constantly um, changing. um, And, you know, it it meant a lot of people were voting in the assembly. So imagine if instead of having a House of Representatives of 500 plus people, um, we let there be 5,000 or 50,000 running and making decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what, I mean, at at a level, it was still more of a representative republic than a pure democracy. But Athens is is where we usually credit uh, that sort of invention of democracy. And wasn't it Julius Caesar who got stabbed in the back? He did. So actually they're excavating the area where he was stabbed right now. There's a wonderful archaeologist from the University of Michigan named Nick Terranato, and there's a cat sanctuary in Rome. Have you been to Rome, Jonathan? No. Okay, so when you go and we can go together, I mean, I will, we can hold hands and go to the cat sanctuary together if you'd like, but it's called Largo Argentina. And it's just dozens of cats who live in this kind of sunken pit. Um, and, uh, it is the, the area that we think was where the Curia Pompeia was. That is to say the Senate house of Pompey. There are multiple Senate houses and there was a theater of Pompey. Um, and, uh, this is the area where Julius Caesar was stabbed. Now, Julius Caesar um, is is taken out by a bunch of people who want to defend the Republic because Julius Caesar perhaps is going to establish a new monarchy. But I will say that going all the way back to Julius Caesar's early career, he holds something of a very important magistracy called edile. And Romans have a yearly magistrate called an edile that puts on games for the whole city. Um, and so Julius Caesar, yes, he gets murdered and is known for that in 44 BCE. But at the same time, he knew the power of putting on games in order to persuade audiences, in order to show them that you have power and you have persuasion and you get free food. Um, so, so I think Julius Caesar appreciated the Olympic Games and he knew the power of athletic as spectacle. So he was Roman, though, not. Greek. Interest. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this so much. We need to do more episodes. Can I just say, Dr. Sarah Bond, you are so genius to suggest Joel to bring in on this because we need to do more of these episodes where there's like, I am obsessed with the convergence of your expertises and I didn't really even understand it until we got like halfway through there in the middle. I was like, oh, yes, Joel. What's when you said like, Joel's like very much in the BCE and I'm very much in the CE, but then sometimes they overlap. I'm so obsessed with this. I can't even stand it. Okay, so let's, okay. I can't decide if I want to talk Okay, do you want to talk about the Lady Olympics? And and then we got to talk about, but I do want to talk about like, so you said that, um, you said that, uh, that 
the heel guy, the heel man had a male lover, Achilles, honey. He had a male lover that he wrote about and they were literally talking about like, now, can you please, like, I hear that there is like that whole thing with like in Greek culture where like the older men and the younger men, can it just be like a nice, you know, age appropriate love story? Is it, is it age appropriate? I'm going to, I'm going to make it nice for you. All right. But I'm going to make it a little complicated. So in, in, when people say in ancient Greece, something happened, it's usually a lie because every city had different customs, right? Mm. So in Sparta or Athens, it would have been very common um, for an older man to have a younger lover. Right. But in a city like Thebes, they had, I don't know if you've ever heard of the sacred band, but they had a crack army unit that was all paired lovers, right? Because the thought was you would never retreat before your lover and you'd never leave them behind in battle, right? So when I, yeah, uh, so when I teach Homer and people say, are Achilles and Patroclus lovers? And if they are, what does that mean? I'm like, what does Homer say? And Homer says very little because he was sneaky, right? The Homeric epic sneaky, it wants audiences to write the love story for themselves. So in some Greek city states, they might be like, well, we don't want them to be lovers. In other city states, they're going to be like, He's older, he's younger, it's all good. And in others, they want them to be around the same age. Um, so, so I'm a Thebian? You, know, you, you, can, you can be Theban as much as you want, right? But you have to go into battle. Oh. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so, but they were just like really muscular, like men in their 30s, like effing each other, like on the battlefield. <laughs> Okay, now I think having sex on the battlefield might intervene. Might the night intervene before? The night before is fine, right? Uh, the day after? But that's what they said in the poems. They were doing it. Tell us. We need the dirty homosexual stuff. And by dirty, I mean gorgeous. Like, because, you know, they can't see my face when I say that. So the poetry is rather chaste. It doesn't really get into it. Oh. Right? Homer doesn't. Uh, sorry oh. to disappoint you. Okay. Um, but, you know, there's some stuff in Plato's Symposium where they, they talk about a beauty of... The gentle caress of another man. (laughs) No, or kind of. It's going to disappoint you. It's going to disappoint you, right? There's a, because what we have, so you don't want to hear about age inappropriate love, um, but we have a lot of pederastic poetry, right? So Theognis has a whole section of poems. So he's from Megara, 7th century BCE, more or less, and has a whole bunch of poems uh, about a, a young boy or younger man. Right. Um, and so the reason we don't teach these is that it doesn't really adhere well to our society's customs. So there was explicit pediatric stuff, but not explicit, like sexy, like grown up, <laughs> devastating. But there's some that refers to it. Right. So this is a Hel- Hellenistic age poem um, later on. Um where the, one of my favorite lines is, uh, I'll um, be my Achilles baby and I'll be your telephus, um, which is weird. Uh, and and the, the, the punchline is um, because my wound can only be healed by your love. Um, and this is from a mythical story where Achilles wounds a guy named Telephus. And the only way Telephus can be healed is with Achilles spear, spear um, which is what <laughs> it is literally. I don't know if it's supposed to be a metaphor or not. And is his moon um, the butthole? Um, I mean, so that maybe or maybe not the Greeks see, we hear a little more about intercural sex. So between the thighs, right. Um, but you know, people, is that where intercourse comes from? 
<laughs> like intercural? Is that like a Greek? No, no. false cognate. No. Nightmare. Yeah. Can I just say that the the Romans are a little bit more apprehensive about male on male sex, not because it doesn't happen, because we have graffiti, we have lots of Roman art, um, we have uh, an incredible number of vase paintings in in Greek art as well that that depicted. Romans are a little bit more hesitant, um, and and this is something that that I think uh, we need to point out that it exists because in, in the brothel of Pompeii, for instance, you can purchase a male prostitute or a female prostitute. Oh, and it was um, only so, for men, these brothels, because I would imagine you wouldn't be having like girl patrons with male patrons. You occasionally have women that, that will buy uh, prostitutes at the baths um, because that's where a lot of prostitution happens as well. Prostitution is legal. Um, and so all of the things that we think about prostitution, which is to say they're illicit and um, it has to happen on the down low. Um, I mean... Pompeii has dozens of brothels and it's a very small 30,000 person town. So people are getting down in Pompeii and it's male on male relationships. It's female on male relationships. It's just that um, Greek relationships between men were much more visible and out in the open. And, uh, you know, Julius Caesar, for instance, has a rumor started that a um, Eastern king uh, essentially makes Julius Caesar his bitch. Um, and, and this is a way to impugn his dignity. And so Romans do have a, a different approach to sexuality than, than Greeks. But again, I, I would uh, stress exactly what Joel said is that when I say the Romans, um, it, it's very difficult to say monolithically, everybody feels this way or all the Greeks feel this way, that there is nuance from town to town and area to area of the Roman Empire. But in general, um, Romans look at the Greeks as having a more feminized version of love and and of relationships and so Romans see it more masculine to give it rather than to take it. So if you're going to be in a in a relationship with two men, you want to be the penetrator rather than the person being penetrated. So that's a big difference in in Romans is that they're much more supportive of penetrating another man than being the person that is getting fucked. Which maybe that's just because they didn't have like running water douches. Like, so they just knew that it was a pain and it was like a nightmare. And so they like, maybe that's all I could, I mean, no, that's, that's all I'm left with. Okay. I have a question. Um, what about lesbians? Like any gorgeous, like ancient lesbian stuff? Like we love an ancient lesbian. So, I mean, look, the, the word lesbian is after the island of Lesbos, where Sappho, the poet, comes from. Um, and, you know, it's, it's supposed to be an island of the most beautiful women in the world anyway. Um, but Sappho is known for writing poetry for other women, right? Um, and, be, and writing love poetry for them. So th- we, we have that. You don't get sort of a lesbian or, or woman-on-woman erotica, right, in the same way that you may for, for men. But that's more because of cultural dominance of men in the period, right? Um, but you do have, you know, Sappho's a good example. Um, Sarah, can you think of any from the Roman period? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, from inscriptions, we know that there are sometimes women who are responding to and speaking to other women on the walls of Pompeii. Um, and so, again, graffiti allows us to 
have a prism into the non-elite classes. There are elites that that actually have graffiti in Pompeii, but then there are lots of non-elites as well. And there's at least one graffito that I have translated that we know was the hand of a woman who is writing to another woman a a metered poem. It's an elegiac poem, and and she is is professing her love for her. So, I mean, there, there are lots of different types of relationships. And so when people only focus on, for instance, Roman emperors, and um, when they only look at, at the people at the highest echelons of society, then we miss a lot of this different fabric of relationships and different types of love um, that we see. And, you know, official relationships that become part of the historical record of the elite, it's about power, right? It's about genealogies. It's about inheritance and wealth. Um, And so the actual sexual behavior, romantic life of ancient individuals, it's almost irrecoverable. Right, it's really hard to figure out. Just as we know that there were men loving men and women loving women in the 18th century and the 17th century, um, our evidence is just bad um, because they didn't write it down for fear of persecution. Mm, Yes. Okay. Now I have a question, kind of around this feminine goal later, because it's in an Olympic and sports episode. I sometimes I wander off into homosexual sex history questions, and I can't help it. So anyway, um, the Lady Olympics, what was that called again? This is the festival to, to Hera. Um, so uh, just as Zeus is, is the one that is being courted with the Olympics, that we have, um, we have the, the kind of Lady Olympics. And essentially it is just trying to worship Hera in the same way that the Olympics worship Zeus. It's not as big, it's not as well attended, but we have female runners and we have... Um, women who are participating. And there are a lot of stories about women in the ancient world specifically doing many of the same athletics as men. Usually they're Spartan women. <laughs> so Spartan women, um, at least according to a lot of legend, worked out naked. Uh, so this is something that not <laughs> most women um in other Greek poleis and other Greek city-states did not do, but Spartan women were particularly intense. And so uh, we have a number of stories about them. Women don't do the same types of athletics or as regularly as men, for sure. They have a lot of other things to do. Um, they have a lot of uh, other prohibitions on them in terms of the spaces that they can go to and the areas that that they can be within, especially if they're married. So also most of the athletes that we know were women from from Greek antiquity were unmarried as well. Um, but Joel, did you want to add to well, that? Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, to take the Olympics back or this in the sports back to how they started, right? So sort of training for war, right? So women aren't going to do that. And then next they became sort of an indicator of your class. Um, so where we get games again in Homer, to go back to Homer, because that's what I do, uh, is in the Odyssey, when Odysseus is in disguise in this island of the Skoreans, they have dinner, and then they go outside, and they say, now we're going to have some athletic contests. 
and he doesn't want to do it because he's been at sea and he's old. And they say, well, this is how you prove that you're a noble person. Otherwise, you're just a pirate and you're not worth anything. And Odysseus gets really pissed off at that and then goes and beats them all in games. Right. Um, and so it's so much part of their culture that that philosopher you might have heard of, uh, Plato, um, his name allegedly means wide. Well, not allegedly. Plato means wide. And it's a uh, name from his wrestling days. Uh, apparently, his chest was so wide. He was so that, yeah, that, that he got this name Plato as a nickname. And that's not even his actual name. Yeah. And I wanted to add in that when we go to the Roman period, which is, of course, more what I'm comfortable with, um, we have evidence for female gladiators. And so it's not as though um, women never have the ability to participate in sports. Now, in, in the Roman period, we do have references under the reign of Nero, under the reign of Commodus, who you may remember from such movies as Gladiator. Um, that there are women who compete in gladiatorial games, but these are mostly enslaved women um, in all likelihood. And many of them are trying to imitate the Greek myth of Amazons. And so um, incorporating myth and thinking about the warrior groups, um, just like we did with the men, I think would be really important to understanding female athletics as well, because these female gladiators that are called in the plural gladiatrices and then in the singular a gladiatrix. Um, these women we know from a relief in the British Museum that has two women fighting each other. But we also have literary references that, that tell us that it was something of a spectacle to go to the Colosseum and see women fighting each other because it wasn't as common as seeing men. Obsessed. Okay, so what about like ancient body image stuff as it relates to, because I feel like a lot of this stuff like is about like bodies and like, you know, your wide chest or like, you know, wanting to run around naked. So like, was there a lot of like, were you meant to be really fit? Like fitness was something that people were really like talking about a lot then? So, I mean, in our earliest evidence of um, sort of talking about bodies from, from the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, there is an absolute correlation between you being an aristocrat or a noble and looking good, looking pretty, right? So, for instance, when Telemachus, Odysseus' son, goes abroad, people say, well, he must be a nobleman. Look how big and pretty he is. And Achilles from the Iliad is famous for being the most beautiful man who went to Troy. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, the fancy word for this is physiognomy, the idea that your, your virtue is shown on your body. And the ancient world is that. So if you were noble, you would look better. You'd be taller. Your skin would be clearer. You had to have your teeth. And a lot of this comes from having a good diet, right? When you, when you're growing up, having access to food and healthcare, right? And, uh, you know, not to, not to get modern again, but we have this in the modern world too. Like you ride the subway, you see, you can read on people's bodies, how hard their life has been. If they had an orthodontist when they were young, if they went to a dermatologist, right? If they exercise a lot. Um, and so in the ancient world, it was the same way. And the only way you'd have the time to exercise, to be a top athlete is if you're wealthy to begin with. 
Right. And, and I would just bring in on the Roman side that if we look to Mark Antony, for instance, one thing that Mark Antony was criticized for is that he went out and got a Greek athletic trainer because Greek athletic trainers go all in vogue in the first century BCE is that you've got to get a gorgeous Greek male athletic trainer and he's going to work you out. He's going to um, cover you with olive oil and strigle you, um, which is how you get dirt off. And I'm sorry that I didn't bring this up prior, but um, you don't have soap being used in the ancient world. It, it exists, but people aren't using it on their bodies. And so people cover themselves in olive oil. Um, and then you have a striggle that you scrape off um, from your skin. And so Mark Antony is heavily criticized by Romans back at Rome because they believe he's gone Greek. He's hired a Greek athletic trainer. He wants to look beautiful. But again, just like Joel said, there's this belief that mind and body are intertwined. And in order to have a beautiful mind, you need to have a beautiful body. And so these two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think we're going to ruin some of your ancient Olympic fantasies there, Jonathan, because you know, the first Olympics would have been smelly and dirty. They didn't they didn't bathe. They didn't have soap. Um, and they just scraped the dirt off their bodies um, and then go back to it. Um, so I think a Probably for us, like if we had a time machine and we used it for this purpose, um, we'd probably gag. So they were kind of stinky, kind of smelly, a little bit yuck. What when you said Troy, where's Troy again? Is that Greece uh, so too? Well, it, it's in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Um, but in the classical period, there are lots of Greek city states um, in what we now call Turkey. In fact, up until you know, the 1950s, there were large Greek populations um, in, in parts of Turkey. Um, so the, it was there. So in 393, when they're like, they are definitely canceled at this point. Like Theodosius is like, no more. Like, but Greece still continues. We just don't have the Olympics anymore. And then that sets the stage for 1500 years later, they come back, which is kind of leading me towards what, okay. So when you were saying like this, we were talking about like the sex and the baths and the, you know, in the prostitution, which reminded me of that Showtime show, the Borgias, where that, where that, uh, the Vatican, uh, like, yes. you know, the Vatican guy, and then the guy fucked his sister, and then their other brother got syphilis, and they didn't have a treatment for syphilis. So they crammed, like, a metal straw up his pee hole and tried to, like, scrape all the stuff out of there, and then he ended up going hazy of the syphilis, and then he jumped off a bridge, or his brother, like, threw him off the bridge. So was syphilis and, like, other deadly STDs? Because, like, did they talk about that ever, ever? Because, like, couldn't you, like, get chlamydia and die back then because there was no antibiotics? <laughs> So. These are all, these are all good questions. I mean, there were sexually transmitted diseases in antiquity, but, um, we, we don't get a lot of literary evidence. Most of the evidence comes from osteological evidence, which is to say bioarchaeology, that is bones, um, people who have been excavated, et cetera. But a lot of this is very ephemeral. It's hard to prove except for, um, uh, except for when you get certain pox that, that are left actually on bones. Um, um, or we get traces of it um, in other ways from from actual archaeological evidence. But um, yes, there there absolutely were STDs in in the ancient world, and the Borgias are the 15th century, and definitely that that is something that ran rampant uh, within Renaissance Rome um, with Lucrezia, who may or may not have been the model for. Um, 
Botticelli's Birth of Venus. We, we don't fully know. Um, and, and I think you're referring to Cesare. Yes. One of, one of her brothers. Um, but, but yes, that, that is a, a very good show. And I do think that sexually transmitted diseases, Julius Caesar probably had the most because he was very into cuckolding his, opponents um by sleeping with their wives um and so allegedly julius caesar traveled to each of his political competitors and would try and sleep with their wives and then when he got mad at them in the roman senate he'd be like yeah i fucked your wife so cuckolding is also a thing in ancient rome and you know there is a disturbing lack of of good evidence for sexual transmitted infections or concern about it in ancient literature we know i mean Part of what has happened with them is that as the world has gotten more populated and we've had sex with each other more, um, local variants of viruses have exploded, right? Um, there is evidence in like non-human ancestors of Neanderthals, uh, you know, of some STIs, um, but you, there's almost nothing in sort of ancient literature. I, I, in fact, I'm glad, I'm glad that you asked this question because I remember being in high school Latin class reading Latin poetry uh, and they're like having an affair and my question to my embarrassed Latin teacher was aren't they worried about getting pregnant or getting diseases right um, and she's like no I was like why not why aren't they worried because they probably would just like lie about paternity if they needed to like if you had an affair because you like, no it is yours but it's like with no. But they, they actually had, Sarah, what's the name of the drug that they had in antiquity that was a really good abortifacient that was so effective that we don't, that they used it to extinction? Oh, gotcha. I, I, have to, I, I think it's, it's like zillium, zithum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it's called zithum. Yeah, we have it all the way up until I think the sixth century. We have um, a, a writer who writes about it being used under the reign of Justinian. But we have a lot of abortifacients, that is to say, um, the, the use of various different herbs and uh, plants to abort children um, because there are there are not really condoms. Women stuff things into their um, vaginal cavities to, no. to keep things coming in. Not, yeah. the, not the antiquity diaphragm. No. Essentially, it is a sponge. Uh, all women in antiquity were sponge worthy. Um, so, you know, maybe you aren't going to get that because people don't watch Seinfeld anymore. But yeah, it's, a Seinfeld, it's a Seinfeld reference. But they... Uh, women had to kind of take their matters into their own hands and also to keep getting pregnant in that way. But yeah, there's a lot of literature does not talk about STDs. And so we have to really look at, at actual osteological evidence, which is very sparse because many of them are very ephemeral. Once somebody dies, we don't have a lot of evidence for them anymore. Okay. So two more questions that you won't even believe the segue. Um, When's like the most recent evidence that we have of like ancient Roman and and Greek um, Olympics? Like, we're like how often are we finding new stuff? Like, could there be like a book with all sorts of like gay love stuff and Olympic stuff somewhere that we just haven't found yet that didn't like biodegrade? Like, are we still finding like cool ancient shit that's not ruined? 
So, so um, Sarah is much better at this, but when it comes to literature, I can say a few things. So papyri fragments. So papyrus is, you know, the, the plant that's then you know, prepared to make a thing like paper. Um, ha- it's preserved really well in like deserts, right? So there's a place in Egypt called Oxyrhynchus that they've been pulling papyri out of, um, fragments out of for, for a while. So we do, you know, almost every decade or so, we have new poet, poetic fragments published. Um, and there's still, there are a bunch of, of carbonized scrolls from the library at Herculaneum, um, which was part of the Mount Vesuvius um, eruption that people are still tearing apart trying to make sense of. So there's always a chance we'll find something, but most of the time it'll be disappointing. Right. And there's only maybe a little over a third of Pompeii has been excavated. And I don't think most people recognize the fact that there's still uh, dozens, even more than that, hundreds of excavations going on all over the Mediterranean. And I write about a lot of them, but, you know, we find uh, a lot of skeletons every year. And so is there the chance that we're going to find a new skeleton for somebody who has an epitaph that tells us that he was involved in the blank Olympiad? Absolutely. Um, we find a lot of statues still and, um, you know, statues oftentimes were allowed to be erected at Olympia or in the the hometown of the athlete in commemoration of their victories. And so a lot of the athletes that we may discover in the future is because we find a new statue that tells us. So like the Discobolus, you know, the Discobolus, um, yes. the Discobolus, uh, that is an Olympic sport. The Discobolus ex- itself um, is from the 5th century B.C., Um, And so we have a lot of these athletic statues that can reveal to us perhaps the ideal scenario, but perhaps the names of Olympians who we don't know about. Um, So inscriptions, statues, skeletons, they come to light very frequently. And the ancient world is not static. It's not dead because we're constantly finding new papyri, new statues, new pieces of art, new frescoes. Um, And this shifts and changes our ideas of the ancient world all the time. So then last question, I think. But I could literally <laughs> talk to you guys for 15 million years. When was the first evidence of like someone doing like a standing back tuck or like a back handspring or like thinking that like gymnastics was interesting? Oh, this is ancient Egypt, my friend. We have gone into the acrobatics. Um, so the acrobats of ancient Egypt are very famous. And we have an ostracon, which is to say a little piece of ceramic. And it's kind of like a post-it note for the ancient world that you have drawings on and inscriptions and things like this, because you just throw away pieces of broken pots all the time so you could draw things. But We have a number of them from the second millennium, um, and it goes back even farther, uh, that you have acrobats doing back handstands. So um, you can go to the Met and see probably the most famous depiction of an acrobat. But then Romans become obsessed with acrobats and hire them like Cirque du Soleil to come to the Ludi, which is the games. So they perform at the Colosseum. They perform at the palace. And acrobatic teams become super popular. So gymnastics comes from the Greek word gymnos, where we get gymnasium, which is to say naked space. Um, but 
acrobats um, were something that were not really competitive in the ancient world, but they were troops. They were traveling troops of acrobats, much more like Cirque du Soleil, that could be hired. But they become very popular, particularly in ancient Egypt. Um, and so we have Egyptian acrobats being brought in um, by Romans as a way of being like, ooh, look at this exotic thing that I have brought from a different area, just like a rhinoceros or a lion or a tiger. And I don't like the equating of people with animals, but Romans used athletes as a way of showing supremacy. So I've brought a, I brought this gladiator from Thrace. I brought this tiger from India and I've brought this elephant from Africa. And that's a way of creating supremacy over all of these peoples and things and animals. And so acrobats and athletes play a part in kind of the constellation of empire that Rome is really drawing. Okay, well, I accidentally have another kind of like thought. So sorry about it. Um, So much in the way that, you know, we were thinking that like, you know, ancient Greece and ancient um, Rome, like didn't operate independently of each other. Like there's a Venn diagram. There's like a confluence of thoughts. There's like shared cultures and stuff. But ancient Egypt was also going on during that time, which just occurred to me. So did the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians like get down? Was there ever any like, did anyone ever come over from Egypt and like, you know, try to fuck like some other guy in the Olympics or something? I don't know why it always comes back to gay sex, but did that ever happen? <laughs> also, I, I don't know if there's any evidence of it. Egyptian participating in the games. Um, but the Greeks were engaged with Egyptians in one way or another for most of their history, right? They were trade partners with them. They got into military conflicts. Of course, like the high period of Egyptian culture that you will be familiar with is before um, the period of Greece that we know. Um, but we want to make it more complicated too, because it wasn't just Egyptians and Romans and Greeks floating around here. We have a people called the Phoenicians who are involved as well, the Persians as we've talked about, many of the people who show up in the Bible were all in this mix. Um, so, and they're all there. They all have different sexual customs and athletic customs that they're actually passing back and forth and comparing to each other. But there was pharaohs in Egypt during ancient Greece, right? Or no? Yeah, so I mean, by the time like our period of ancient Greece that we talk about, um, Egypt had fallen and was under different kingdoms, right? So what? Had, yeah. So in 776 BCE, when they had the first Olympics, like Egypt was getting run by somebody else? Huh? It's, yeah, unfortunately, after about the, the seventh century, um, we have, uh, you know, the Persians coming in in the seventh century to, to take over Egypt, BCE. So Egypt has essentially been occupied, um, since the Persians in the seventh century BCE. And then it goes, so Egypt is then ruled by Persians. Then we have the, the takeover of the Ptolemies, who is a general of Alexander the Great. Um, and the Ptolemies go all the way until the overthrow of Cleopatra. And Cleopatra dies in 30 BCE. And then the Romans rule it and annex it as a province. And so Egypt has been an occupied territory for so many but, years. So Cleopatra was a... 
She's a Ptolemy. She is part of a, a Macedonian dynasty, although we don't know about the heritage of her mother. So before the movie comes out with Gal Gadot, I, I will send notes about this, but um, she comes from a Macedonian line. We don't know about her genetics fully. So but, where's Macedonia? Um, is this a second oh, episode? It's a second episode. <laughs> you probably yeah. need to go on, but so Macedonia yeah. is Northern Greece. Right. And it's where Alexander the Great comes from. Uh, I'm sure you'd love to do an Alexander Hephaestion episode because there's a little <laughs> bit of material for you there. Um, and so this is, you know, the Macedon came and conquered southern Greece and then went and led the Greeks to conquer the Persians and then conquered, went all the way down to Egypt. And so from about 323 BCE or so, Egypt was ruled by um, a Greek speaking um, noble family. Right? Okay, so they intermarried and Okay, so I, this, I think this is actually my last question, which I probably should have asked at the very beginning. So when from like 767 in the first alleged Olympic Games or 776 BCE, when was Greece the most powerful? Like when would have the Romans been like the most afraid of the Greeks? Like when were they really just dominating? So, uh, I mean, uh, the Greeks were never as powerful as the Persians in a way, right? Um, they were mostly just fighting themselves, they never threatened the Romans, right? When they were at their most powerful, it was when the Alexander and uh, led the Macedonians and the Greeks out of Greece and conquered the Persians. Um, but it's one of those things where maybe if the Persian Empire had been stronger, uh, it wouldn't have happened. And so when was that, though? 331. 331, he went out. Oh, um, CE. And, yeah, BCE. BCE. 331, yeah. And so then the story of the Mediterranean afterwards, the Eastern Mediterranean is a bunch of huge battles between um, Hellenistic kingdoms ruled by Macedonian kings, but outside of Greece. And then when does Cleopatra die? Um, So... Cleopatra dies in 30 BCE. This is right after a big naval battle with Rome and uh, Octavian is there who later becomes Augustus. But I thought Alexander and, the Great and Cleopatra did it. No. That's Who did a, Cleopatra so, do it with? Antony. Yes. She, she sleeps with Julius Caesar first and they have a son named Caesarian. Um, and then she hooks up with his BFF, Antony. Um, and Antony and Cleopatra die within a few days of each other. Um, so Cleopatra dies in 30 BCE, and that's really the end of the Ptolemaic Empire. Um, and Alexander the Great's empires, kind of writ large, all kind of end at that point, even though they had been separate kingdoms afterwards. Um, and Cleopatra, then her kingdom becomes Roman Egypt. And so when I refer to Egypt, from the death of Cleopatra forward, I say Roman Egypt because that means that Romans have colonized and taken over it. So yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating period. And, and Egypt is happening again at the same time as Greece and Rome, even though when a lot of people teach it, they teach it as, okay, once upon a time, here's ancient Egypt, here's ancient Greece, here's, here's Rome, but it's not a linear narrative at all. Which I think I just really spent the last hour and 15 minutes realizing when I thought I was going to talk about the Olympics. So this is the literal final question. It's open. Final thoughts. Joel, Sarah, is there anything that we should have covered that you're like, fuck me, we really should have said this thing about Greece and we didn't? Or like, is there anything that we missed or that you just want to say? Where can people find your work? Where I mean... So, um, uh, look, I, I think we covered 
great stuff because we talk about how complex things are and how there's not simple answers. So that's a big win. Um, I put a lot of stuff on a website called sententiaantiquae.com. Um, and um, I'm going to say this so my publisher doesn't hate me. I have a book called The Mini-Minded Man um, about the Odyssey but from Cornell um, University Press. And every time I go on podcasts, I forget to mention it. Um, so not today. Yeah. Let Bethany know I didn't forget, forget her. Bethany, you did good. And we did not forget. <laughs> Uh, I think that we've covered a, a lot of interesting topics and certainly there's a lot to keep in mind before the Tokyo Olympics happen. Um, one thing I will say is that I've been following a lot of the things having to do with Simone Biles lately. And uh, I think greatness should be allowed to shine. So I think that, you know, in ancient Greece, there were umpires, there were judges, but they also allowed athletes to be as exceptional as they possibly could be. So I think one thing I would take away from this is like, let Simone be great. Let her get the points that she deserves for all of the amazing um, dismounts that she's doing and all of the, the amazing um, gymnastics. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is that the Olympics have always been not only religious, but political. Um, and so we didn't get to talk about Hitler and the Berlin Olympics in the 1930s, but um, we should also know that the Olympics has been manipulated and used in modern culture as a way of connecting different cultures, particularly Nazi Germany, back to ancient Greece. And so it's not completely innocuous. It has been made political at various times. Um, so, so I think it's an, important to see that the Olympics are important to study, but have also been used by governments and by various different cultures over time as a way to get prestige. Rome did it, but so did Nazi Germany. And to an extent, I think other people do it still today, using Olympic athletes as a way of reflecting greatness on their own nation. So you mentioned the Russians, for instance, um, and I think that people still see a lot of nationalism embedded in the Olympics that we should really address. So those are the things I think. And in terms of uh, my stuff, I write for Hyperallergic, which is a awesome arts and culture blog that is run by Harag Vartanian. And uh, so most of my stuff is there. And long ago, I wrote a, a book called um, trade and taboo, disreputable professions in the Roman Mediterranean. There's some gladiators in there if you want to learn more. And that's from University of Michigan Press and came out in 2016. Although there's an audible version that you can listen to that is not actually my voice because I sound, uh, you know, probably not like something you want to listen to for 10 hours straight. That is not true. I love your fucking speaking voice. Don't you ever talk about your voice like that again on my podcast, Dr. Sarah Bond. You have an amazing voice. But also, wait, did you have anything else to say? Because I just realized I had one other question. No, was this there is, gold, that's it. Was there gold, silver, bronze medals in ancient Greece? No, nope. you, you got a crown of olive leaves or laurel leaves, depending on yeah. the big. It's all about the glory, man. Was there a second Nothing and third? For second. Nothing nope, for no second. second, no third. Oh. We know that athletes sometimes got these like red skeins of yarn that they could put on themselves and, and tie them. But yeah, we're talking about just a, an olive 
wreath that goes on top of your head and and no prizes for second all the way up to 393 uh, ce when they ended there was never no second and third like that didn't happen until 1896 like till the modern right and there's there we i think that later on we get the payment of athletes but the very first olympics and the very first olympic athletes they're not getting paid any kind of money just all glory oh and what was the money was it just like little circle rocks Um, no, we have, we have coinage, uh, that, that comes into circulation and the coinage is all coming from base metals that are gold, silver, and bronze. But even in ancient Um, Greece too, Joel, there was those coins. Yep. And I mean, some of our greatest is. Uh, historical evidence comes from coins um, and different all the different city states made their own with their own divinities or images on them um, it's fascinating this entire field of studying coins called numismatics um, that would it's, Sparta it's, take Athens coins or was it only in the cities well so Sparta actually banned money they 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 had like iron rods instead yeah. so you weren't allowed to have money in Sparta you just yeah. had to spend all your time being a buff warrior Oh my God, Joel, I think I may have just accidentally like looped you into another podcast recording for a later date where we talk about like inter-ancient Grecian politics. I, I'd love to do that. Oh, fuck. Oh, and then also, Sarah, last question. When was Pompeii again? When was that eruption? Um, So Vesuvius, which is the... Which is the volcano on the Bay of Naples. It erupts many times, but the one that we focus on is 79 CE. So that's a few right years after Nero. Yeah, it's a few years after Nero. About oh my, 15 I, years. So you guys, after. are we starting a history podcast? Like, are yeah. we start, like, oh my God, <laughs> this is like, I can't. This is so good. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Sarah Bond, Joel Christensen, thank you so much for your time. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guests this week were professors Sarah Bond and Joel Christensen. You'll find links to their work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN for more stories that we're following and we'll also update you on new works by all of our former guests. Yeah, follow us or doing the most over there on at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick.